Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is really cool to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Michael. Who didn't put his bookmark? Oh, he did put his bookmark in his place, so that's good. Uh, and yeah, I am, as I said, a, a member at Harvest Glasgow, and it is great to be here again with you. Um, as many of you know, Lee, uh, your pastor here, is doing the M77. We've passed each other, I think, this morning. Um, so he's preaching at, at Harvest Glasgow. Um, and as you can probably tell by my jumper and the weather and the scarves and some other people's jumpers, we are well into December. And that means that talk of Christmas music is now officially tolerated, allowed. Not before December, but it's now tolerated. And I would just like to, I'm going to do some audience participation early. I apologize for that. But I'd like to see by a show of hands, who has already heard Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas? Cool. So next question, hands up. Who has played it by choice? Cool. So you might want to look around at that point just to see who you know. Yeah. Just take a mental note. Um, but yeah, and also because it's December, we're, we're into a Christmas series. Uh, and this year's title is, is a little while lower, The Hidden Glory of Jesus and what that means for you. This really feels like really big. I feel like, sorry. Um, but this morning we're going to be looking at how, um, sorry, how Jesus is here for our helplessness. Um, I don't know if I, can I put this down a little bit? I'm, I'll not touch it, it's going to go wrong. No, it's all right, because... It'll just end up clanging. Will we do it? <laughs> Sorry, I just, I feel like a schoolboy looking over the left hand. Do you know what I mean? Is that better? Yeah, that's cool, thank you. Um, I know that's it. I must be slouching. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, so we're going to look at how Jesus is here for our helplessness. If you'd like to grab your Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18. And when we think of Christmas in the Bible, we're usually drawn to passages that describe the virgin birth or shepherds or wise men or something like that. But this passage we're looking at this morning might not at first feel too Christmassy. Um, it's not describing Jesus' birth. It's not even got a stable or the nativity scene or shepherds or an innkeeper or anything like that. But, but it gives us such a great insight to what Jesus' birth means for us. What Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth means for us. So let's read together Hebrews 2, verses 5. To 18, I'll pray and then we'll dive in uh, to the Christmas stuff. <laughs> For it was not to angels that God subjected to the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. 
and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when being tempted, sorry, for he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me pray. Father who dwells in heaven, Father whose, whose name is holy, Lord, give us what we need today. Teach us from your word. Show us your son. Show us why he came. Show us why he had to come. This, this beautiful plan put in place before the foundation of the world. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with, with knowledge of your goodness and of your mercy. And just as we look towards Jesus and, and look towards his mission on earth. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Now on um, Sundays I would usually be involved in the music at Harvest Glasgow. I would do a bit of preaching, but usually I would be uh, involved in the worship team. Um, and it's one of the worst kept secrets uh, with the worship team is that I do not like Christmas music. No booze, that's good. We're in mid-December, so maybe there's some people who are with me a bit, but let me explain. So when we gather on a Sunday, I am excited to worship together. I'm excited to, to lift high in the name of Jesus in worship, to, to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has done and about the eternal hope that we have. And I'm also aware that we get quite a short time on a Sunday morning. So I want it to matter. I don't want to be singing about little towns and little donkeys and little drummer boys. I want to be singing about Jesus. So yeah, there's some Christmas carols I'm not a fan of. Um, but there are a lot that I do like and maybe that will come up later. Um, but to Hebrews this morning, this letter of Hebrews was written to formerly Jewish Christians who were under great pressure to return back to Judaism. They've been pressured to abandon their Christian faith and go back to the rituals and festivals and traditions and, and reliance on that tradition over the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the message from the author of Hebrews, what he's saying to these Jewish Christians can really be summed up in one question. It's just, why would you ever want to do that? Jesus is so much better. Why would you ever want to go back to that thing that never helped you? That thing that you needed saving from after receiving, transforming help in Christ? Why would you want to go back to your helplessness? Why would you ever want to do that? Jesus is so much better. And that temptation in, in some ways is still here for us today. So much of the stories that we read and watch and so many of the celebrities and, and academics and politicians and people of influence we see are kind of doing the same thing. They're trying to steer us away from living our lives for Jesus and instead to be living for ourselves, to live our truth, to be our authentic selves, saying that the best thing that you can do is to put you first and be you the best way you can because you're great. Follow your heart. Because the desires of your heart are who you are. And to be truly authentic, you have to listen to and follow those desires. But if you're a Christian this morning, you know that's not true. The reason you gave up 
your old life in the first place because you knew that didn't work. You tried it and it didn't work. It was your desires that left you empty. Why would you ever want to go back to that which just doesn't work? Why would you want to abandon Jesus who gives us restoration? Those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have been given new life in him, know how truly helpless we were without him. Why would you ever want to go back to that? Jesus is so much better. And so this morning through Hebrews, God is reminding us why Jesus came. Why he's so much better and why he's here for our helplessness. So if you take notes, the first of three points this morning, surprise, surprise, three points, is we feel helpless in our lack of control, but Jesus is in control. We feel helpless in our lack of control, but Jesus is in control. I'm just going to take a sip of my tea. I'll let So, uh, as I said, I love worship music. Um, and there's lots of really good modern Christian music now, but there was a time where there wasn't really that much um, contemporary, decent Christian music. But um, back when it was just becoming a thing, there was a guy called Rich Mullins. Um, was one of, one of the really first contemporary Christian artists. Um, and what we started to thinking about, um, there's just a wee quote from some of his lyrics that I'm just going to stick up. So the lyrics will be on the screen. It says, They said, Boy, you must follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, Follow your nose. But the direction changed every time I turned my head. They said, Boy, you just follow your dreams. But my dreams are only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I've chosen and I will follow him. Jesus created you. Jesus knows you far better than you know yourself. And so looking at this text from verse 5, the writer of Hebrews is building his argument here. He's saying Jesus is far superior to angels and then all the world is his. Everything is in subjection to him. Everything is under his authority. There's nothing outside his control. So when Jesus enters his creation, when Jesus dies for humanity as humanity's perfect representative, when his death is in place of ours, when his life is given to us, then it changes everything. And the writer starts showing us with angels, showing Jesus far superior to angels, and yet still he makes himself lower than the angels, becoming like us, becoming human. So angels, right? It's in the passage. But reading the Bible is a cross-cultural activity. Not only are we reading something from another language translated to English, we're reading something located in a very different culture from our own. And not only is it a different language and different culture, it's also from a different time. Hebrews was written nearly 2,000 years ago. And it's fair to say our culture has a different view of angels. I wonder when you watch the TV this Christmas what depictions you'll get of angels. Um, probably something very different compared to uh, those who would be hearing the letter of Hebrews when it was written. But what can be more Christmassy than angels, right? We put them on the top of our tree, maybe put them in our window, sitting there in the wee cloud, playing the wee harp, maybe playing a wee trumpet. But who are what are angels in the Bible? Well, in the Bible, angels are not quite like how they're portrayed in art and media today. In the Bible, when an angel shows up to to quote a well-respected pastor and theologian so that uh, it's a direct quote so I don't get in trouble, he says, when an angel shows up, you wet your pants. You get on your face. And in fact, John, so John, one of the disciples, wrote one of the Gospels, wrote Revelation, walked with Jesus, 
knew him, saw and talked with him, followed the ministry of Jesus, followed him, followed the resurrected Jesus, saw him ascend to heaven. This John, when he met an angel, fell down on his face. And actually he worshipped the angel. So in Revelation 19, 9 and 10, he says, The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So this is John speaking. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So John sees the angel and he's overtaken with awe and fear and wonder and falls on his face and worship. And the angel's like, what are you doing? Don't worship me, worship God. So angels are messengers, they're warriors, they're spiritual eternal beings. They're not ornaments. They're not cartoon characters. Um, so I was tempted to do a bit of a word study, flicking all over the place to see these angels, but actually we just have to um, go back because the author of Hebrews actually already gives us some information about angels. So could we just turn back to Hebrews 1? 1, 1. We'll just read 1 to 7 and go through it a little bit. So firstly, speaking of uh, Jesus in that second verse. So it says, Long ago... And many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So we read here that angels are created beings and Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the son of God, creator of the world and heir of all things. And then looking just to their identity, verse 6, they're worshippers of God, let all, let all God's angels worship him. So not only did Jesus create angels, Jesus is worshipped by the angels. And in verse 7, there are his messengers, the, the wind and fire suggest power, judgment, so they're both his messengers and his instruments. And then, or we'll be here all day, just jump down to verse 14. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels sent by God to serve the people of God. They minister to those who will inherit salvation. Angels don't create the message. They are messengers. And angels are not to be worshipped. They are worshippers. They carry the message and they worship the object of that message, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1 tells Jesus is God. He's an active agent in creation. He's completely superior, far superior to the angels. And then coming back to Hebrews 2, 6, he becomes lower. And verse 6, it, say, um, it says, it has been testified somewhere. Now, that somewhere is Psalm 8. Um, so the author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 8, showing that it's talking about Jesus. And the quote starts, what is man? These verses are comparing our humanity with God. Showing our weakness, our mortality, our lack of capacity. More than anything, our dependence. Our dependence. Thinking even just of the earth's atmosphere around us. We are completely contingent and reliant on God. Even thinking of this here, God is maintaining the atmosphere that we might breathe. 
He's maintaining that atmosphere and gravity that we might not just get sucked off the side and, and die and crushed in a vacuum of space. He's maintaining that atmosphere that protects us, that we might not get burned up by the heat of the sun. That's just one example now of God's sustaining power. Never mind our daily needs, our emotional and physical and spiritual needs, and everything. We are helpless without the intervention, every second of our Creator. And then these verses just move on to show that Jesus is in complete control, that all things are subject to him. And we, uh, in our society, have a habit of stacking things up in our lives to give the feel of control. And it starts early. It starts even at school. We're told you want to work hard and get good grades so that you can get a good education and get a good job. Why? Is it for your happiness? No. It's for security and control. Happiness doesn't really come into it. Satisfaction isn't considered. Security and control. You want to get on that property ladder, buy a house, start paying off a mortgage. Again, security and control. And then get that pension pot built up. Make sure that employer's matching your contributions. Get your nest egg. Have that comfortable retirement. Why? For security and control. We look to control the way we live. Maybe the way we eat. Maybe even the, the way we age with the creams and lotions and potions. And one of the fastest growing areas just now is cosmetic surgery with lip fillers and Botox and all that. It's gone from an investment and an experiment of the rich to being on the high street and the beauticians and the hairdressers. A desire even to control how we age. And then, of course, the whole online world. A desire to control how others perceive us posting only, you know, the filtered pictures, the preferred version of ourselves, not the family photo from a minute ago when everyone's screaming at each other, just the nice one. And then even in Christmas, there's a desire to change the story, to control the narrative. It wants to keep it about the baby in the stable and totally ignore who that baby is or what that baby came to do, to, to sanitize and remove the impact of the Son of God, creator, entering his creation. I've heard it said the world-defining moment of the artist entering his painting. Because that changes things. That puts demands on me. I have to do something with that. So let's just keep it to stable scenes and Santa and presents and Pucky and Mariah Carey. Nothing that confronts my life, my reality, my eternity. Nothing that stops me from avoiding the question, is this really all there is? If we make Christmas into the noise and the events and the presents and the food, even if we do it accentuating good things like family and generosity, then we're still trying to try and make that real message, but it won't go away. All our attempts at control fall short because even if we do a great job at all this stuff, we can't control death. Our mortality still mocks us at every turn. So we try and fill our whole lives with noise to drown out our helplessness. We fear the silences because of the questions that they ask of us and we ask of it. So we just fill, fill, fill. Whatever will stop that small voice. That voice that says, I was made for more than this. I was made to worship more than this. I was made to worship Jesus. We fear a lack of control. But we don't have to be in control. Because Jesus is in control. Everything is in subjection to him. That language is used three times in this verse. It's to really emphasize this to us. Becoming human, dying on the cross, didn't 
happened to Jesus by accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. And actually, the, the Christian life, being a follower of Jesus, is about giving up control. Jesus being in control is a great thing for us. Jesus, I thought my way was right. I thought I could make myself happy, but it's only led me to feel more lost and more out of control. Please help me. Jesus is in control, so I don't have to be. What a relief that is. I can focus on and trust on the one who came with a plan set in motion before the foundation of the world. So we may feel helpless in our lack of control, but Jesus is in control. And then next, we feel helpless in our fear of death, but Jesus conquered death. Feel helpless in our fear of death, but Jesus conquered death. Now we see Jesus becoming lower, hiding his glory, tasting death in our place for our sins, that he might be eternally glorified. So think of his glory has been hidden. In what way was Jesus' glory hidden? Well, those of uh, Jewish faith at the time Jesus came were expecting a Messiah to come and proclaim his kingdom. And there's many Jewish faith who still think that and are still waiting. But they're expecting a Messiah to come and overthrow the oppressors. So at that time they were ruled by the Romans. So expect the Messiah to defeat their enemies and reign like a new King David. But Jesus came quietly. His glory hidden in the form of a baby. The wonder that the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God himself, would become human and would eternally unite himself with humanity. So the humanity of Jesus at this time veils, hides, obscures his glory. So this short time he's made a little lower than the angels that he might unite humanity and himself by being our one-time sacrifice for sin. It's only this baby born to a virgin girl that can satisfy God's judgment on sinful humanity. It's only Jesus as, as fully God and fully man who can satisfy that demand for perfect obedience, like us in his humanity, but unlike us in his divinity. This is the hidden glory that's now been revealed to us. And it's revealed in what that baby would ultimately come to do. In these verses, it's like the author's providing his own commentary on, on the, the verses he'd shared from Sammy and its reference to Jesus. And he gives us a reason. Why is Jesus so glorious? What makes him so worthy of honour and worship? Well, the answer we can see is his death. Look at verse 9. Let's read it again. It says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Crowned with glory and honour because of his death. And then in verse 10, in his death, Jesus is made perfect, shown to be perfect through his suffering. That phrase made perfect, the word is the same root that Jesus used on the cross when he said it is finished it is accomplished it is made perfect my mission is complete and now we know from all across scripture that Jesus is perfect he was perfect and in perfect union with the father and spirit before the foundation of the world he is perfect eternally forever glorified reigning at the right hand of the father and he was perfect in his humanity accomplishing our redemption and perfect sacrifice and the one shown perfect obedience to the Father that we could never be. 
And in being made perfect, as it says here through his suffering, really he is shown to be perfect. It is revealing his perfection to us. How's it doing this? Well, without Jesus' death on the cross as a man, we wouldn't know the ability of Jesus to be our perfect salvation. We wouldn't see him to be our perfect propitiation, to be our perfect leader without his suffering humanity, without his death on the cross. So as his incarnation reveals to us his perfection, reveals his perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice. And through all this, Jesus ends up exactly where he began, equal with God, as God. But he has now united humanity with himself in his death. And now everyone gets to see the depths of that perfect love. And we get to wonder and marvel at his mission being completed. So Christ's death sets us free from sin and death. Christ's death takes away the fear of sin and death because Christ's death defeats sin and death. It's finished. It's accomplished. Jesus Christ is shown to be perfect through his death for his people. For all who are not in Christ, death is still the greatest enemy. One that can be railed against, but never conquered. Some think that this life now is the best it's ever going to get. And if you do think that, then my heart breaks that that might be true for you. But for the Christian, yes, this is a fallen world. And death still holds potential pain. Due to sin, there's still decay and potential real and sustained hurt in a physical death. But it doesn't have to hold fear. Jesus has tasted death, has defeated death so that we might be given life. Jesus defeats death for his people. Jesus defeats death. And for the Christian, death is now less of a dark grave and, and more of a, a doorway, like, like through Narnia, to, through to the light of life, through to the wonder of an eternity with him. Death is not changed. Death is a release. You think of the, the, the thief on the cross beside Jesus when he was being crucified. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what awaits for the followers of Jesus. Just now, Christians are, are, are in Christ, as Paul says, but then Christians will be with Christ, with him in paradise. Those who trust in Christ will be resurrected with him to a new body, to a world with no more pain and sadness, to restored, recreated minds and bodies and wills, and to a new heaven, a new earth, where we will be with God fully, not veiled like in this present world, but wholly, fully, eternally in the presence of our Saviour. That's where Christmas has taken us. That's why we celebrate this touchstone moment, because the wheels have been set in motion for the greatest rescue mission that there ever was. On our own, we're helpless in the face of death, but Jesus' death has defeated death. So the call for us is now to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So to live in light of this new identity, dead to sin, alive to God, being crucified with Christ, raised with him into a new life now. And this promise, this, this identity changes, yes, totally for eternity, but it's also for today. Because overcoming our fear of death is an act of trust. It's an act of trust in the God who has united us with Christ and filled us with his Holy Spirit and sealed us for eternity. So we feel helpless in our fear of death, but Jesus conquered death. I've hammered that nail, right? <laughs> So we'll come to our third and final point. We feel helpless to save ourselves, but Jesus stands in our place. 
feel helpless to save ourselves, but Jesus stands in our place. We feel helpless on our own. We are helpless on our own. We need a saviour. And the Christmas story is so significant because it shows us how Jesus came as that saviour. God has provided the means of our salvation and we are to walk in it. Looking at verse 16, where it mentions the offspring of Abraham, and this is a reference to God's chosen people. So basically, Abraham believed in the promise. He had faith in the promise that God would provide. He had faith that God would be his God, his saviour, his deliverer. And through Jesus, we are part of that same line of promise. All the way from Abraham to Israel to the disciples to the early church to now the offspring of Abraham are those who put their faith in God's promises. You may say, well, Michael, I'm not so sure about all that salvation stuff. Just think if you live a good life, things will work out and God will take you to heaven. Well, this is a belief in salvation. But it's a belief in salvation by works. That your goodness can somehow earn your way into heaven. It follows the belief that you're not so bad that you need a saviour. And so that you're not so helpless that you need to be rescued. But Christmas undermines that belief completely. When we think of the Christmas story, we're thinking of God taking on human form. He didn't leave his throne and take on that human form because we needed an example of how to be good. Or just a wee hand up. He came because we were helpless and needed rescue. We are helpless and we need rescue. But he is mighty to save. Let's read to verse 17 again. It says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus died for his people and to do this, to accomplish this, he was made like his brothers. He was made like us. And that's, that is the Christmas message. Jesus was made a little while lower, made like his brothers, died for his brothers, stands in the place of his brothers, and Jesus reigns for his brothers now and forever. Jesus took us from being a, a they to being a we with him. In Jesus, we become family, brothers. If you are a Christian this morning, then Jesus speaks of you as a we. Amazing is that. He made himself like us. He can sympathize with us and he can help in our helplessness. And then verse 17 also says he has become her merciful and faithful high priest. Let's just look at those. So, so first, Jesus is merciful. Our sin demands justice. Our rejection of God demands punishment. But Jesus came to take that punishment on himself. Jesus became human in every respect, as it says, so that he might reveal his mercy by taking the penalty of our sin. That penalty meant for us and absorbing it in himself on the cross. That's what it means when it says he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. His mercy makes him stand in our place. He absorbs our sin. We get his righteousness. He takes our filth. We get his perfection. So Jesus is merciful. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is completely dependable. Jesus knew what his mission was and he was utterly faithful to carry it out. And that goes for past, present and future. Those verses we read earlier at the start of Hebrews 1 reminding us that Jesus created all things, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power and Jesus makes purification for sin. So through his death on the cross, again it's his death that's conquering and then he sits down. 
sits down at the right hand of the Father, his work complete. Jesus' willingness to take on humanity to accomplish our redemption is the greatest evidence of his faithfulness that we have. Utterly trustworthy, completely dependable. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is faithful. And then Jesus is our high priest. I wonder what you picture in your mind when you think of a high priest. I'm guessing definitely some sort of costume, right? A big hat. Maybe some sort of sash. Definitely some gold about. Maybe some skirty dress thing. Some sort of staff. Maybe somebody with smells and bells around as they walk into the room. But definitely a costume of some sort showing the status of the priest. But for, for Jesus, it's not a costume that Jesus wears. It's what Jesus does. So in the Old Testament, in the temple, the high priest would offer sacrifices for sin. He would mediate between the people and God. His job was really to bring people near to God. And that's an early shadow of, for us of what Jesus is. So Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, gives us access to the throne room of God. He cleanses us that we might come to God. He sympathizes with our weakness because he's been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. And he makes intercession for us. Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, gives us confidence to come, knowing that we are welcomed in by his sacrifice. But for me, this is where it gets even cooler because Jesus is a high priest Jesus is also the sacrifice. And Jesus is also the temple. Jesus is our high priest, so we don't need to go through anyone else to get access to God. Jesus is our sacrifice, his blood shed on the cross, one time, once and for all, sacrifice for sin. So we don't need to do penance. We don't need to walk around in sackcloth and ashes or perform physical acts to gain forgiveness. Jesus is our sacrifice. And then Jesus is also the temple. We don't have to go anywhere, not even Queen Margaret Academy on a Sunday morning to worship God. We can do it anytime, anywhere. I mean, still go to church, right? It's good to go to church. But when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two, symbolizing that full access to God has been opened by Jesus' death. So since we have a great high priest who's done all this, it then says later in Hebrews, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith through Jesus Christ. You might feel at times like you're holding Jesus is, is weak and shaky. But Jesus' hold on his people is firm and sure. Jesus himself brings us near to God. Because as God, Jesus came near to us. He became like us. That's why Paul is clear to say, uh, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. As our merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus stands in our place as God. Jesus stands in our place as man. We feel helpless to save ourselves, but Jesus stands in our place. Jesus is here for our helplessness. So way back, however long ago it was at the start of the message, I was joking about not liking Christmas carols, but that's not the case for all of them. I like Christmas carols that worship Jesus. Listen to this uh, part of a verse from Heart the Heaven, talking about Jesus. It says, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. 
Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Mild he lays his glory by. Jesus laid down his glory, his glory hidden and veiled as we thought about this morning. Born that man no more may die. So Jesus, born of a virgin, taken on our humanity, born, lived, died to conquer the power of death for us. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. So Jesus died not just to conquer death, but to give us life that we might be born again, given us a new hope and future. And in heart, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Well, we thought at the start, the angels have been messengers, servants proclaiming this message, worshipping King Jesus, saying all glory to the Lamb who was slain, all glory to King Jesus. So I'm up for that. How good is that? I like Christmas songs that worship Jesus. So it's more than another step in our Christmas season. It's quite cool to do it together, um, Glasgow and, and, and you're having some of that stuff together. But Christmas is Jesus' first step towards the cross. Known and planned before the foundation of the world. That first step to showing that everything is in subjection to him. How he rules over everything and everything is under his feet. Christmas is that first step towards his eternal, forever, visible glorification in the new heavens and new earth. So this morning reminds us of this first step as we turn our minds towards the incarnation this season. He was a little while lower, his glory hidden, that he might save his people, that he might be eternally glorified. A little while lower, an eternity glorified. So I thought that he is in control. He has conquered death. He offers to stand in your place. He is here for your helplessness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to earth to save, for humbling yourself, for taking on humanity to save humanity. Lord, give us eyes and ears to, to see and hear beyond the noise of how much we're tempted to encounter with this Christmas season. And Lord, give us boldness and courage to be like the angels, to be messengers of Christ to be messengers, messengers that declare the wonder of your incarnation and the glory of our Saviour. We worship you this Christmas season. We love you.